Welcome to Building New Realities podcast two. And we are very lucky to have uh, Belinda Ganaway joining us on the podcast, who is an employee involvement strategist, facilitator and coach. And you deal in the world of building new realities, um, which is obviously the, the subject of this podcast. So Belinda, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Number two, I feel very privileged. Number two. Well, you came highly recommended. So uh, we were <laughs> e eager to get you in. Um, yeah, so this is week two of sort of uh, COVID, new COVID times, new realities. Um, it certainly gives a bunch of interesting material in the context of building new realities. Um, but Belinda, looking at your bio, I mean, this is your kind of world, isn't it? You go into organizations, you deal with organizational culture, you really try and get people to sort of step away from their day-to-day -day interactions and think of the organization um, a bit more, perhaps as an organism, perhaps as being observant on how the inputs and actions within the organization change the way people relate to each other. Would that be correct? Exactly. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm part of a business called Fathom XP, which has been around for about nine years now. And we broadly fall into the bucket that's known as employee engagement and increasingly employee experience. But what, I mean, our purpose as an organisation, we really exist to try and help organisations become more human, connected and authentic. And for a lot of organizations that we work with, that, that is around some sort of change. So we are focused on supporting some sort of change and weaving that goodness around humanity and connectedness and authenticity into that change, just to try and create or support. We don't try and create, we're not the instigators of this. We're the helpers of organizations who are on some sort of journey to become more human connected and authentic. But it is, um, Absolutely, we're now working in a in a rapidly evolving reality, if you like. It's, I mean, I was working in, I was involved in the world of digital transformation for a number of years, and I don't like this VUCA word, it's been overused over, over a decade or so, but actually it's never <laughs> sort of more relevant. And I think when people talk about big unexpected change, this we really are in it at the moment. We're very much in this whole kind of period of acute uncertainty. And when we actually step into whatever the new normal looks like is a, is a bit of an unknown. So interesting, interesting times. Um, and I'm fascinated by organisational culture. And I think organisational culture can be quite difficult to get your head around or your hands around. It can, it's always there. Sometimes it's more visible than others. But I think organisational culture is really evident during periods of I don't want to say crisis, but acute uncertainty is a great phrase. Um, so yeah. it, it, I think organisational culture is showing up in, in loud dollops at the moment across the board. And that's, that's a really interesting thing to be part of. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, going back to your sort of opening statement, which is around um, examining or connecting the sort of authentic emotions of both the individual and the company. When you go into companies to do your work, how much time do you spend digging, um, not digging, working with individuals to try and get them um, perhaps to open up or to talk more emotionally about how they feel about the workplace versus looking at the company as a whole? Because I'm always very interested in, you know, the 
the face we have, you know, the public face, which is, I'm fine, I'm handling this, I'm doing okay, et cetera, et cetera, how we project. And then often when you get people to stop and sort of get them to open up a bit or let's talk about how we really feel, there's kind of a different yeah. narrative going on. So I'm interested in, in, yeah. in how much of your work focuses on, and I guess it's how much time you have with those teams, is it like digging in with the individuals and getting them to feel safe to open up versus mm. the organisation piece? Mm. It's a great question. Um, I had a fascinating conversation with um, someone this morning, really, really related to this. So I've got lots of ways of answering it. So in terms of specifically in terms of our work, we tend to work with groups of people as opposed to individuals. I am a coach as well as all the other stuff I do, but I am an organizational relationships and systems coach. God, that's a mouthful. Mm. So that means that I work with um, teams, groups and systems rather than one-to-one. -one. In some ways, it's a bit of an artificial construct because an organization is actually only really a collection of people. Mm. But in some way, some, and it's also a really valid question because I think particularly from a cultural or people perspective, what we see, particularly in large organizations, is, oh, we do an engagement survey or we do a survey once a quarter or however often it may be, or we apply for this best employer award or whatever. And so, and everything's okay. Everybody's really engaged and really happy. But actually that, what those people are doing is they're answering a set of questions have been constructed by the organization to give a certain set of information hmm. and as you suggest beneath that level people have a range of emotions and experiences um, that are unique to them and may well not be reflected in the kind of the data that you get from a more traditional survey and we as what when we are working with organizations we're absolutely fascinated in finding and revealing that insight or that intelligence to the rest of the system, if you like. That's a very, so from the, the, the coaching I do is called ORSC, as I say, Organization Relationships and Systems Coaching. Mm -hmm. That's all about revealing the intelligence of the system. So the intelligence is already there. These conversations, these emotions, these thoughts, feelings, already there, and they can be used massively in service of the organization, but quite often they're just undiscovered or underexplored. Mm. So yeah, absolutely is what we do in our work is about trying to reveal that that energy or that that intelligence in service of the organization rather than keeping a lid on it so it can be a bit messy <laughs> yeah yeah interesting um so re yeah revealing the intelligence of the organization so i guess in uh, my, my superficial experience of this kind of work that would be what are your what are your brand values and um you know at which people at which time we would sort of trot out, you know, um, honesty, energy, doing what you said. Um, but what you're talking about there, di di digging out the intelligence of an organization, does that, does that work better if the organization has been around for a certain period of time and a, a certain uh, number of people? Or I, I suppose, I'm interested to hear how it varies because if you go into an organization that hasn't changed for years and it's business as usual and it's one of those organizations that, is not adapting to a new reality, is not building new realities, you know, it's just gonna tank. Uh, and then you've got kind of upstart organizations that are very fast, like Airbnb, that are completely taking over organizations. Be, be interesting to hear about what the sort of, the different types of, what intelligence of an organization uh, means.
Mm. Well, I think, so I would suggest that change is always trying to emerge. Something is always trying to emerge. So if you've got an organization that's been around for a really long time, and yes, things might be done the way they have been done for a really long time for a reason, but there will always be something trying to emerge because the world is changing, right? The organization is operating in a world that is rapidly changing. And it's what we know is if that organization stays the same, it's going to fundamentally cease to exist within a within a period of time yeah. so organizations need to be continually adapting and evolving and systems or relationships with people groups of people something is always trying to emerge within that in order to support that change in some way so i don't think it i mean we can work with small organizations new organizations or older organizations it, it doesn't matter i think the, the sorts of organizations that we work with tend to be larger uh -huh. um because there's something about newer, younger organizations when this is a sweeping generalization that they tend to have been born out of a slightly different area of a less hierarchical, um, more involved um, sort of culture, if you like, where conversations are more organic and more fluid and where the reality, where the intelligence is, is more accessible. Whereas in a, an organization of hundreds of thousands, distributed around the world that's been around for 10, 15, 100, 200 years, whatever it may be, those structures are actually designed to maintain the status quo and to minimize risk. So the, the intelligence of the system can get buried and hidden or ignored because actually it can be seen to be very challenging to the status quo. But sometimes the status quo needs to be challenged. Mm, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And how did you get into all this? Have you always sort of worked in these, um, I'm going to call it psychologically oriented field? <laughs> uh, oh, I love that. Yes, but probably not in the way that you think. So um, I've done, I, I've had a bit of a journey, haven't we all? So um, I did a politics degree and my, my very first job was actually working as a journalist in the Houses of Parliament. So um, I actually worked on the in-house magazine for Parliament, which is absolutely fascinating. What was what was really interesting about that was, uh, so Parliament as an institution is over a thousand years old. So you've got layer upon layer upon layer of um, different cultures within that organization. And it's fascinating and impenetrable and um, just, yeah, an incredible, incredible place to work. And after I was there for a while, I then moved into business and journalism. So I, so rather than writing about polit political systems, I ended up writing about business systems. Mm -hmm. um, and then I sort of turned, I don't know if I went poacher to gamekeeper or the other way around, but I, I moved into PR and marketing. So rather than talking about the decisions that other people were making, I started to be more involved in those, in those decisions. So I started to be more on the inside of that. And that took me into, um, so I'm so ancient, this took me into the world of um, when social um, new media and social came along, I became very interested in digital and how that was challenging organizations to be more transparent and open and collaborative and all that good stuff. So that then sort of took me into a leap away from um, pure comms into much more people and change elements of organizations, which has very much brought me back full circle to, oh, look, 
look at these things called culture and how people relate to each other and how they are with each other. So that's kind of full circle, but I suppose the common thread along all of that is probably just, I'm, I'm really nosy and I ask lots of questions. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> how was, what was working in Parliament like? It sounds like that was at the beginning of your career, but how was, what was that like as an experience? Yeah. Wow, it was, I mean, I didn't know anything else. So I was, you know, from a smallish town, left to go to university, first person to go to university, my family and all that stuff. So I didn't really, I had no experience of this world. So it was fascinating, but I didn't know at the time it was any more fascinating than any, than the, any other workplace, because it's just what I knew. Yeah. But it was also in a very, very different era. It was, you know, literally, I, I before I had my own pass to the to the house, I used to borrow our colleagues and we used to go in or we used to just toss up to some of the police on the front door and they'd let us in to go and drink in the bar, be, you know, at the gym with Paddy Ashton in the sauna or whatever. It sounds a bit dodgy. It really wasn't. Um, <laughs> that, that does it, sound a bit dodgy. It, Paddy Ashton in the sauna. <laughs> oh, love Paddy. Um, <laughs> bless him. Um, so it was a very it, fascinating. What was it like to work with? I learned a load um and if i went but now i think i'd learn a load more because i didn't know what i didn't know at the time but fascinating and i yeah did, i loved it I loved did it, it feel because obviously that's a place where the culture and the way of doing things you know we're talking about old organizations is literally ingrained into every bit of fabric with uh yeah. very um rigorous established timetables you know from what time the vote is, to what side of the house you've got to walk on, you know, all these kind of processes that um, are not very, perhaps not flexible to change or just very established. What, what was your sense of adaptability or was there a sense that actually it was this, the kind of the rigorousness of this timetable that kind of kept the institution going? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um... So I'm just going to frame that question back to, show, to make sure that I'm talking about the right thing. So I think the question you're asking is how adaptable was it as an institution to change mm. or what maintained the structure of the way that it worked? Yeah, I, I think um, both, both of those, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I guess culture, the, the sort of structure culture and process in any organization um, and all of those things were very very evident there it was very prescriptive I suppose about how things happened and you say the timetable and the hierarchy mm. you know even from which door you go through no, I don't just mean for voting you know in terms of which bar you're allowed into depending on which house you're in and um, what's acceptable for you to do versus acceptable for an MP to do in, you know, and we were bumping along together in that institution. So I think it was, I mean, this is going back a long time. It was very structured, very rigorous. And as you say, that timetable was massively important. Culturally, I mean, this is my experience as a much younger woman and you don't realize at the time, I sometimes the sexism was evident in, in my, in my world as a you know as a woman in, in my 20s and sometimes it was less evident because I was you know I was a kid that grew up with Benny Hill on the TV we didn't yeah. know what we didn't know that this stuff is shocking mm. so there was definitely some I don't know why I'm going on to um everyday sexism but I think in terms of the culture of the organization so yes it was very rigid and very timetabled 
Um, but also there was an old boys network of people who could kind of get away with doing the things that they wanted to. And I, sometimes that was unpleasant and sometimes it was literally just, you know, the bar staying open later or, or getting access to something that you needed at that time. So there were workarounds. Um, in terms of its ability to change, gosh, it's a good one. I mean, you know, I was working there up until the time of the 1997 election when Blair came in with a landslide and he brought in, I can't remember the numbers now, but an awful lot more female MPs that had never been there before. And I think the complexion of the house changed. Um, it's been fascinating to see, you know, what the culture is like now compared to what it was like then and how it will change in this new normal I suspect it, it, it's moved a little bit towards um, uh, awareness of make sure you don't get caught. Um, you know, whereas <laughs> things were a bit more um, flagrant um, and then perhaps moved into yeah. don't get caught. And then it perhaps is trying to... You know, it's interesting. You see some some of the younger MPs come through who who just speak very passionately, very committed, and really sort of use that phrase of you know holding truth to power, and and they really stand out. You're like, wow, that's really great to, to hear that. In Absolutely, that kind of organisation. I mean, my experience of the place was very positive, and I think you know, slagging off politicians is very easy, mm. and I and sometimes it's justified, but I think in an awful lot of times it isn't. I think you know, people don't go into politics for, for money or um, I, I think an awful lot of people go into politics because they want to make it for the right reasons. Yeah. They, absolutely. Absolutely. That, so that would be my overwhelming take out of it. Okay, cool. Well, that's very interesting. So that's a very old institution we've talked about. And then as we've mentioned on the opening, we, you know, we're currently, currently in a, in a potentially in a period of radical change. We're certainly in a, short-term period where we've all had to change our working patterns we've had to be conscious of uh looking out for each other um of course, of course talking about the you know the covid crisis um how do, how do you think that the, the covid crisis will affect the future of work do you think this would potentially just be like a short-term like six month ten month inconvenience or do you think this is going to have a bit a bigger impact on on sort of habits and, and changing habits? Mm, it's, it's such a great question, and it's so easy to answer it going down that oh we'll all be working remote, and I will come to that. But I think that's just a fraction of it. I I don't have the expertise or the knowledge, but I'm wondering how big are change on actually the economy and society that this will change, particularly the economy. Um, about how the capitalist system works and looks after people is going to be dramatically, it's, you know, our perspective on that, will, I think, will be dramatically different on the other side of this. Um, how that influences big organisations that employ people or small organisations is going to be interesting. I have, I mean, I keep hearing across the board um, empathy, which I'm fascinated in. So the organisation as I'm speaking to, I keep hearing how well 
the organisations are really empathising with the people that work for them in this time mm. and really massively supporting them. Now, empathy is a big trend in. And that's, and that's, a, big, and that's a big change, right, for companies to be kind of empathy first rather than actually let's just cut a bunch of people because we've got a reason to because they're not yeah. being as effective. Yeah. Kind of like workforce first. It's like got any problems? Just let us know. Tell us. So that that feels like a a big change. It does, and and that's from my experience, which is limited. And it's only the, the you know the, the companies that I work with, and the, you know people that I talk to about the companies that they're working with. So it's limited, and I'm not saying this is universal, but I do see that as something that's happening. I think that's really, really, really interesting. I think to go back to the say, you know, it's a bit of a it's a bit easy to jump into. Oh, everybody's going to be working remotely, and mm. um, this is obviously already massively happening anyway the, the 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 trend towards being more people working from home is, is huge and it's been known about for many years it's creating a new context of work anyway for lots of organizations so you've got much more distributed teams and much more diversity in teams both in terms of you know culture and geographically where people are in your teams and also the age of your people in your teams so there's an awful lot more i can't remember the statistics off the top of my head but you know numbers of generations in a workplace so we're all learning to work in much more diverse say all large numbers of people working learning to work in much more diverse um, and distributed organizations and that requires different skills, both from a peer-to-peer, -peer, how do we work together? And it requires different management skills, don't like the word management, but if you think of management in terms of um, leadership and coaching, supporting teams to do their best work, it requ that requires a different, a different mindset, if you like. And also from an organizational leadership perspective, it, it's different. So it, it requires sort of a range of different um, thinking and, um, just just to connect people and make sure that they feel that sense of belonging that people need to do great work and that they feel recognized and and um connected to one another mm, yeah interesting yeah so one or i can't help but think you know we're we're all sort of feeling oh there'll be on one hand there could be large societal change on the other hand Another view is that, um, well, this, you know, COVID is a, is a sort of warning or a yellow card from nature saying um, yeah. all this kind of hyper rushing around, uh, projected massive growth of airlines, um, kind of more, 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 you know, the uh, Amazon, Amazon, I can't even say that, the Amazonification of kind of life where yeah. it's a button and it's there at your doorstep uh, uh, seconds later. It feels like it's a, it's a, it's a nudge. From nature going well there you know this is not going to end well for for either of, either of us um and really in the context of kind of a big environmental change you know a a little or not little little being affected by it but you know a a a virus uh, a pneumonia that goes around killing a lot of people uh, and causing inconvenience but is still i would imagine fairly small and significant compared to large ecosystem change so part of me makes me think, oh, this is a, a very obvious, clear in sight, uh, warning, yellow card from nature for to us to adjust our ways. People are kind of in the heat of it. We all respond going, oh, well, yeah, I think this is going to change things. But as humans, we all have a tendency to slip back into a business as usual um, yeah. quite quickly. So, yeah. and obviously there'll be a massive 
desire or urge by you know corporate worlds to resume business as usual i'm sure it's kind of pushed remote working it's certainly pushed collaboration it's pushed different ways of doing things further up the agenda mm. um mm. but it's it's yet to be yet to be seen i think um how that is sort of kept front of mind um when when you know when things do get back to inverted commas normal or perhaps as some people say you know things aren't going back to normal it's not going to be business as usual and that could be a number of reasons remote working remote working typically wasn't embraced hugely because it was it was always said to be like oh well we need to make face to face to get a better decision to get a better quality of interaction Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think from from some sides that's if you're paying the wages you want people to turn up because you feel you're getting a hundred percent of them um, but yeah. but that's perhaps a, a, a misguided thought. You know, I think if you're if you're closing a big deal, then perhaps there is the the requirement or the desire um, to at least have had one physical interaction. But again, if this goes on for a long time, we're all locked down. You know, people are going to be closing deals without that physical interaction. We're just going to uh, adapt very quickly. Uh, I heard a good, good quote yesterday, which was. Um, Climate change needs to get COVID's PR agency. Yes, yes, absolutely. I keep thinking of Greta, just told you how angry. <laughs> yeah, or despondent she must be going, oh God, so you're worried about this, but you're not worried about the bigger thing that is just around the corner. It says a lot, doesn't it, about human nature, you know, that climate change is going to kill an awful lot more people, mm. but it's just not so visible we can't connect with that individual story i'm fascinated by stories and the power of stories so we don't the climate change story is very big and amorphous 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 and it doesn't doesn't it doesn't seem a story or narrative that we can grab hold of so it's always slightly out of reach whereas you tell me about somebody at the end of my road who's got who's got this virus and suddenly it's like oh whoa okay wake up call and um, so it's interesting as you say it's it's, it, well, it's incredible yeah. it's, it's incredible isn't it to have things shut down to the scale they have because there's a, a a really spiky nasty cold going around um mm. whereas you know we're talking about <laughs> massive long-term destabilization of of home and, and like you say people yeah. can't, can't get their hands but heads around the story yeah yeah i i like the point you meant about um will we rush back to the workplace um and the power of togetherness being in the same space there, there is some stats again from about the percentage of a decision of any given business decision that's not made in the usual channels so in a meeting or conference call or whatever but it's actually made in the informal channels the social channels so how you make a decision is influenced by how often you bump into somebody at the, at the coffee machine for instance so that's an interesting challenge but I think it's a human challenge. It's like, how do we stay connected and create that sense of belonging and build those relationships of trust when we're not in the same place? Because what we know is that getting in these little tin boxes and then flying somewhere for a, for a two hour meeting and then flying back again, that is not sustainable. And mm. I, I do hope that will change. I'm not, yeah. So with that, yeah. With that percentage of a decision that is made in, channels that you wouldn't expect is that is that a theory within your kind of organizational culture world or is that a, is that a book that someone's written about that 
Yeah, it's a piece of research. Um, I will find it and I, I'll show it so you can add it to the, to the notes. Um, but yeah, I mean, what's fundamental to the work that we do, whether that's um, discovering something that's there, revealing something to the organization, or whether it's trying to involve people in activating something, what's fundamental to that is that there are these invisible patterns that connect people and teams and one team to another team that is where an awful lot of work is happening but it's not it's not formal and it's not recognized there's a great book i'm reading at the moment by a woman called siobhan McHale, and the book is called um, the insider's guide to culture change and she talks about um, culture as being made up of these patterns these invisible patterns that connect people and different elements of a system and I, I i really like that and it really um speaks a lot to me about the work that i do in, in in our coaching and also through through the work that we do with fathom which is making these 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 patterns or these connections much more visible and then thinking about how how can we actually harness these to do great work yeah and what might those patterns typically either look like or be made up of yeah, sometimes so there's an, another great, um, this guy like the godfather of culture, if you like, a guy called Edgar Schein, and he has, if you, if you don't know it, you've probably seen it anyway, he has a water lily um, model of organisational culture. And it, it's, it's the stuff that you see on the surface, where you walk into a, an office, you see rows of desks, or you see people with their headphones and not talking to each other. There's a sort of a theatre level of organizational culture if you like and that's where you get the values um stuck on the wall on a poster so that's what the people are saying or the espoused values this is what we're saying is our culture and then you've got the the real culture that sits below the water of the water lily uh, of the water lily if you like and this is the sort of the hidden assumptions and beliefs and these are hidden assumptions and beliefs that are both held individually and um as a collective as well so for instance um, it might be, uh, we don't tolerate jerks around here. I can't remember which tech company it is that says that. And the truth may well be, no, you don't, unless that jerk is um, the, the highest paid person in the organization or part of that highest paid team, and then you do. So that's an unspoken, unwritten rule, but it's a pattern of behavior that becomes the established norm. Or it could be, I love the, um, it can be around diversity and the role of women in the organisational perception of, of the status of women organisation down to, I had a woman describe this once in a meeting, um, who takes cling film, off, cling film off the sandwiches. And I just thought there was a, such a small micro behaviour there. So it's those, it's those hidden assumptions and beliefs that inform our micro behaviours that actually create these patterns of interconnectedness that may well be completely at odds with the value that we've got on, on the wall. So innovation is another great one. We have innovation or test and learn or whatever it may be on the value of our, as a value on our wall, but we know that actually what gets reward and rewarded and recognised in our organisation is people hitting their numbers. And so there is no room for trial and error. There is no room for failure. It's all about performance against the numbers. So again, that's where the, the, the espoused values on the wall or what people say matters is slightly at odds with what's really happening. And you don't necessarily know what's happening until you go in and have a, have a really good look and start talking to people and get people to tell the stories about what it's really like to work here. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean it's all negative. I've given you more negative examples, but there's often a very rich thread of positivity about things that people really enjoy and value about working in the organization. 
but that's never really surfaced or celebrated or, or again, harnessed in any way. So that's an opportunity to really um, drive change in a positive way. If you can serve, surface some of that stuff, I guess organizational culture is actually a lot like personality because our personalities are the things that we present to the world, but very much made up of those sort of 40 years of learnings and beliefs and um, ethics and all the stuff that sits inside me that you wouldn't know about unless you start to explore. And what are, are examples of organisations um, that you don't have to name by name if you can't, where, where you've seen the sort of most vivid um, and useful uh, enhancing embracing of their organizational personality where it's really brought to the fore and it's and it's thrived in some way uh, either what kind of organization or what kind of uh, habits and actions take place in that organization to uh, allow the, the sort of organized energy organizational energy to be uh, very very vivid and alive mm, okay um so a piece of work we've just done with a global organization. Oh, there's another example I want to bring, I want to share as well. And it's just trying to, to pop up in my brain and it's not. So I'll, I'll share this one and then I'll see if it comes to me as we're talking. So an organization we've just been working with um, is a global organization that's been around for um, 50 odd years. And people love it. It's a, it's a family owned and run organization and the people that work there really, really love it. And that's, that was kind of unknown. The fact that people felt valued and respected and like they were part of the family was something that was kind of known on, a, on some level, but never really harnessed. So the purpose discovery piece we've just done has really um, brought that to the fore and made people think about the organization in, in a slightly different way. Again, it's not that that was an unknown, the fact that people felt valued and respected and connected and they really, really cared about the organization. This is a, an organization of tens of thousands of people. It wasn't that it wasn't known. It's just, it never really been seen as a business asset, mm. if you like. Mm. So it was something that was, you know, sometimes talked about in the, in the history books of the organization, but not something that was seen as a, an energy that could be harnessed and supported and and worked with and that's that's really important now because the organization typically has had really long tenure people have stayed for a really really long time but what they're finding increasingly around the world and there's all sorts of reasons for this is that their younger generation are typically only staying for a couple of years when previously their tenure was sort of 10 years plus so that becomes an issue for them so by looking at those positives in the culture um, through very much an appreciative inquiry approach and a storytelling approach, getting people to tell a story about when they're feeling proud and, and of working there and, and telling stories about what it's like to work there on a day-to-day -day basis. You start to surface that energy and it makes it more real somehow and it becomes something that you can work with. So now we've got that. It's like, well, actually, how do we use that to... If our, if our people have been here for 10 years, feel really connected and a sense of belonging, supported, they want to stay. How do we, how do we take that and, and bring that to the people that are only staying with us for a couple of years? Or what is it within our organization that's most relevant to them that we can harness this positivity and apply that same thing to them to hopefully get them to stay with us for longer? And typically, what are the kind of, of actions that might trigger that, that well-being? I remember being in an organization... Um, 
last year just visiting and and was just struck that you know it was that was the day that lunch came round so you know someone came and brought lovely salads and food for everyone and it wasn't kind of a, a google style go to the buffet you know it was it felt much yeah, more yeah. like a, a picnic in the office you know it's one of in one of those offices you know kind of artificial grass park benches in there etc cetera, etc cetera. but this uh, and obviously food's such a big um motivator for all of us at a, at a primal level that perhaps that's why it really resonated where i could see everyone really joined together but in times in in terms of the type of actions that um you've seen really facilitate um people appreciating an organization and enjoy working there let's use sort of you know having lunch brought to you as one what, what, what would other types of actions be that's a great question and what you're talking is kind of intrinsic intrinsic motivators going on here so i do a lot of work around employee experience and i'm writing a book on it at the moment um and it's really really unique and personal to different organizations and also to different people about in terms of what they want and how they feel connected and supported the problem with the free lunches or the free fruit bowls or whatever it may be is that it's great to have and people love it and then it's like oh but i noticed that we didn't have raspberries today why didn't we have raspberries so it can become a little bit like wallpaper that you love it the first few times and then almost you stop noticing it yeah but it's the stuff that people really noticed and really has an impact it's the stuff that goes much more to the to the heart of who we are as as people as, as human beings so that's that sense of being valued of being recognized of being supported of feeling like we belong and yeah the when you get the free food i love it the one thing you described in the free food thing is like actually that sense of getting people together it can be the getting together that is 25 times more valuable than the fact that somebody's giving you a free sandwich i mean free sandwich is great but actually that's not that what that really sustains us as 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 sociable social connected human beings mm. we need something much more um deep much deeper than that and that so that i guess is fundamental to the book which is this sense of just because google has a great gym or just because company x down the road gives you free fruit on a friday that doesn't mean that's what's going to create a great experience for your people it's about psychological safety it's about feeling valued it's about feel, feeling connected and feeling belonging a sense of belonging and that shows up in different ways so if the, the free fruit is, is helping people feel cared for and like their well-being is important that's that's great it's only just one thing it's not going to it's not going to tick all the boxes I guess the thing then is particularly with the with the fresh with the food example, and I think you made a great point that people very quickly can go, oh, wasn't wasn't as good as last week's, or you know, because yeah. of our, because of our our nature of scarcity and fault finding in the sort of happiness, very easy to go to to, to this something. I guess um, let um, be consistent in making people feel appreciate, connected, valued, and then uh, like with the communal lunches, perhaps don't make it a regular thing because then we very quickly become used to it and we even more quickly can turn it into a negative if it doesn't happen for some reason. Yeah, and you know, you could have, you could have the best weekly team lunch and people could still have a really shit experience at work because it's the day-to-day -day, yeah. um, connection that people have with each other, with the work and also with the people that, you know, 
are, are supposed to be supporting and coaching them to, to do the best work. And that's what can become incredibly hard when people are remote, they can become invisible. And particularly for people, you know, managers looking after teams of people who may not have looked after a remote team before, it can be very easy for people to feel isolated and um, neglected. That's really not what you are particularly going through the uncertainty. Yeah, so given the context that we're in, what would your tips be for managing a remote team? Talking. Just talking. talking, yeah. Talking, checking in, putting yourself in their shoes. So, you know, one person's experience of working remote is going to be different for another. So, um, I have children. So they're at home, so you know that that sets up a different context than somebody that may not have children, maybe working from home. They might not have any connection with anybody else during the day. So yes, they don't have distractions, but that sense of isolation could be really acute for them. So putting, don't take a one size fits all approach. Talk to your team about how they want to stay connected to each other and to you. What how you can best service that. And then work in that way, just acknowledging the fact that it's going to look different for different people. Um, but just keep talking and keep asking and, and really put yourself in, in that sort of servant leadership role of how can I help you feel connected, supported and, and do the work that you want to do. Yeah, interesting. So in terms of your work, when you go into these organisations, it sounds, it sounds very... Uh, um, it sounds very talky. Uh, is there any tech you use in terms of digging into um, people's emotions? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so I work a lot, we, we collaborate a lot with an organization called People Lab. So Emma Bridger is the, the MD there. She's a positive psychologist um, and we're writing the book on employee experience together. So she would use a lot of um, psychometric testing tools when, when appropriate. Um, that we may some, sometimes we use um, cultural diagnostic tools which are interesting and useful and in fact we're looking at plugging in more of those kind of survey stroke discussion tools into the work we do at the moment because we can't do a lot face to face so we're doing a lot virtually and we want to join the dots between those virtual connection points so if we're having what might have been a one day, two day workshop, now it's being broken up into two or three different virtual sessions. We need a way to maintain the conversation. So a way of taking some of the conversation that might happen in the room to a, a virtual conversation that still is alive and human organic and visualizes and joins the dots. So we're not just going, oh, let's do a survey, but it's, it's much more an organic approach than that. So we'd use, um, online platforms in that sense obviously we're using all of the typical um collaboration tools and we're having some fun at the moment experimenting with some um virtual um whiteboarding tools as well mm -hmm. so that that's great a lot of the work we do is around and um, a chunk of the work that we do is around design sprints around employee experience so it's interesting to look at how can you take that classic in the room and very energetic very messy three four five day design sprint and take some of that online i haven't cracked it yet but we're, we're working on it so yes we use tools in lots and lots of different ways but um i think the heart of what fathom does as a business is around employee involvement or involvement and um, so working with people to discover something and then working with people to create and activate something mm. so that's very much a, a human bit which may be supported by technology but it's the human connection that's fundamental 
And, and I suppose in the current climate, you're, you're busy sort of trying to adapt. You're keeping the, the human dimension, emotion at the heart of it, but you're just having to find new ways yeah. to work around that. Yes. Yeah. It, it's um, exactly that, yeah. Which is interesting anyway, because, you know, the necessity being the mother of invention, these you'll probably yeah. find a, a really interesting strand of, of working with people in this way, which will then allow you to kind of expand your outreach so you can have a mix of physical meetings, but then have also some, some tools you build for this more uh, remote application. Yeah, absolutely. And um having some really fascinating conversations with with your team exploring very early stage just exploring actually what could an immersive technology do for us particularly in the area of cultural culture um, understanding so what this is really early thinking at the moment but what we see is that leaders business leaders typically find organizational quite, quite culture quite difficult to get their heads around they there's there is a tendency to try and outsource it either to agencies or to cultural champions or to the internal comms team get some posters but what we know is an, you know an organizational culture is is many many things but it's also alive and living and you, you simply cannot outsource it so i'm really interested in how we can help leaders really get a, a systemic understanding of what culture is and their role in culture. Um, and I think using immersive tech to do that could be, could be fascinating. Um, yeah, just at the beginning of thinking about that. But as I say, empathy is a, is a really big element of the work that we do in our thinking and our approach. And so I love, I love the, um, the, the empathy generating the language is probably just not quite right, but the, the, the ability to, to work with empathy through immersive tech, I think is fascinating. Yeah, I think that's quite unusual. Um, you know, going back to one of our earlier points of like, we all have a, a face that we like to put on our persona. Uh, and actually when you go into these immersive worlds, you're, your persona or who you are because the immersive environment is so convincing so your brain goes oh well i know i'm in a cgi computer graphics generated environment but i really yeah. do believe that that plane is coming towards me or i do understand that i've been told to go and do a task and i will go and do it so you very quickly just go into oh there's a bunch of things i need to do uh, and therefore you act genuinely you come from your instinctive reaction um, mm. and by but of course you've got this massive variable of where well, you can put them in any environment so you can see mm. how people genuinely react perhaps when their team are struggling or they need to communicate something or do they decide to save themselves you know what's their yeah. actual motivation versus their their perceived motivation of what they should do uh, in those scenarios mm. Mm. another great leveler of course is when people are perhaps sitting around in, in workshopping and they're, and they're workshopping, um, you know, about emotional matters within the company. And let's say you've got a range of people within a team and they've got a sort of senior leader or they've got their, their team leader in the room, you know, they will be, they'll go, okay, we're, we're in a, a, a workshop about culture and, um, and how I feel in the company. Therefore I need to be a little bit more open. I need to be a, a little bit more honest, but perhaps, because I'm still watching the body language and cues of the people around me, I'm 
I'm not going to be, go the full way. You know, I'm not going to genuinely um, tell people what I think unless you've really worked with them to go, you know, it's a safe space and kind of really open them up. But by putting them in, a, in an immersive environment, in a context that's not their office or is, uh, is not their day-to-day -day, and giving them another set of tasks or challenges to do, and you know they have fun doing it, and it's kind of safe, and it feels like a game. And then they you can, they can come out of it, and you can review how it went. Um, mm. People can say, "Oh, you know, if someone is particularly uh, bossy, or is particularly just helps uh, doesn't uh, help other team members, people feel perhaps a bit safer to go. Oh, well, you're like that. You know, you do that in the office, um, mm. because it's through the sort of lens of this uh, other experience they've had." So it can just give those like little bits of opening up that uh, are really yeah. valuable. I think so. And as you said, that the safety around that is massively important. So if I were to think about, you know, we, we always try, well, we often try and have multiple layers of people within a, within a hierarchy in, in different workshops, but you absolutely need to, need to set that, if you do, you need to set that up in the right way. So there needs to be really, really clear permission for people to genuinely say what's on their mind with no, absolutely no fear of, um, of, of retribution, it's not the right word, but go retribution afterwards. Um, and so people's willingness to speak their mind is, is, is an interesting one. So you need absolute guarantee to safety to do that. But if you're going to remove those, um, that sort of filtering process, so I'm in a workshop, I'm not gonna say what I really think because I don't wanna look stupid or I don't wanna challenge. If you remove those filters by putting them into an immersive space to, to learn or explore it, whatever it may be, they need to be super confident afterwards that whatever they, whatever their true nature that they have exposed to the world is not going to be held against them. Mm. It's only going to be used with the best possible intention and love to help people grow and um, do the best for themselves and the organisation. So yeah, that, that sense of safety, I think, is absolutely something that we need to be very careful of with immersive tech an interesting one of the, i think it's a train is it a train company in germany is using immersive tech as a as a recruitment tool or a selection tool probably i should say properly so people are actually going through some sort of immersive um experience to test their their skills or their their competencies i'm not quite sure which um as part of that selection process now that, that's really interesting again it's like using it in with um consciously and, and in, a, in a sense of psychological safety for people to make sure that it's being used in absolutely the right way yeah that i mean one of the big advantages of immersive tech is in the training context is it provides well, the way we phrase it is access to situations and scenarios that are physically impossible or prohibitively yeah. expensive and what it also does is it um enables a faster route to competency because you're getting access to these scenarios that are otherwise difficult to uh, uh, access. But what it can also do is it can help with kind of um, pre-selection or kind of uh, aptitude. Um, yeah. By putting people through it, you can quite quickly work out if they have the sort of competency skills um, that you need. Right? Let's use a train example. You know, you've You've put them on the platform. You've put them on the platform where the train comes in short. You then put them in the platform where perhaps, I don't know, a 
uh, someone's suitcase has fallen down. All these situ scenarios that are kind of quite difficult to to simulate effectively in real life, and you can yeah. see how they react um, quite quickly. Yeah. So, so this yeah pre-selection piece. I think more for um, for roles where the the, the 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 training path is either long or expensive. That kind of investment yeah. makes sense because yeah. if you then got a pilot who, after you know two months of training, you're like, oh, they're not going to cut it. You know, if you could have got to that in two days, yeah. two months. So. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So what's that? What's that? I've got a couple more questions for you here. What's the one thing that your work's done for a client that you weren't expecting? Oh gosh. I want to sit. I want to go. I want to go back to the beach and have my run again to ponder this because it's such a good question. Um, what I wasn't expecting. I think that a, the reason I'm struggling with this potentially is because what we do is about revealing um, information from. The, the system to our clients in some way and then working with them there's always something revealing there mm -hmm. I think um, it, it's similar to the, the purpose discovery work that I just shared with you one of the things that we worked with the client quite recently that we kept seeing time and time again is how much people liked each other um, and how right. supportive they were of each other yep. so we thoroughly enjoyed seeing that hmm. um, and experiencing that and actually holding that mirror back up to our client within the organization is was brilliant it was really lovely yeah yeah really really lovely I think um, on the less cheerful note I mean in the work that I've done around transformation in the last sort of 10 years or so what you sometimes get is the client goes a little bit native with us so what I mean by that is that so that's not just with Fathom that's in the other organizations that I've worked with the, the client can really like the exploration and the deep work that we're doing and the involvement and some of the principles that we bring to the work around empathy and so on but there's actually a cultural systems level context that means that they can't really continue to do that work so they might have been set up to do a project like that but the, the system that they're working in is not conducive to that way of working or that way of thinking. So yeah. actually what we sometimes find is that clients decide that their future lies elsewhere. But that happens anyway, so that doesn't always happen. Um, but it, it, it can be a really, really, for, it can be really nice, that's a crap word, but it can be an interesting thing to see when somebody realizes that actually they can do better work and they're really inspired to go and do better work. And sometimes that is within that organization and sometimes it takes, it takes them elsewhere. Got you. So it's kind of a motivating factor for them. Yeah, yeah, kind of a journey of discovery for them as well and the work that they want to do. Mm. And um, got an interesting one for you here. If you had 100 million to spend on building new realities in the UK with no red tape, how would you spend it? No red tape, building new realities. I would do something around social cohesion and social disadvantage. So something that actually I think coronavirus is doing for us in some ways, something about reconnecting people and communities. Mm. So I think in the UK, I don't know the stat, but it's something like we're the least 
connected generationally in the UK. So a young person here is much less likely to have any form of relationship with somebody over the age of whatever, 60, 70, than in any other country in, the, in, in Europe. And I, that's, that's devastating. So something about social and economic divisiveness between the haves and the have-nots and just the connectedness, how one type of person just will have no experience of relating with, hanging out with, talking to another sort of person. That, that makes me oh, incredibly oh, oh. Uh, yeah, and I think the, the point you touched on there, reconnecting generations is really important because, you know, you read these um, stories from people who are at the end of life and they've got a perspective that is so valuable but so often not heard. Mm. Uh, you know, while we're busy, we're, we're all busy running around trying to get to the goal and then they might have some wisdom like, well, when you get to the goal, you'll turn around and actually wish you'd spent a bit of that little less time running around and perhaps booked out some time to uh, go and smell the cherry blossom. Absolutely. And you, the request doesn't need to be in those frames. It doesn't need to be framed in terms of advice, but just, you know, tell me a story mm. because all the wisdom that we need is contained within stories, but they're not, they're not being shared because those connections aren't happening. Yeah. Um, and so I see, as I mentioned the corona thing, so I'm looking out of my window on a, on a little road in um, Hove at the moment, and I've been here for two and a half years. I, I know my next door neighbours and that's it. We've, it's such a cliche, we've now got the, the WhatsApp group going on and people are talking and they're sharing and they're shopping for each other. And, they're, and that's new and that is, you know, it's... it's it's, 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 there's a little bit of diversity. This is Hove, so it's not big scale diversity. There's a little bit of diversity. There's different sorts of families. There's different ages. There's you know different people on our street, and you know we, we are having new conversations. Um, but wouldn't it be amazing if we can take that and scale that, and that continues to happen after after this this thing that we're living through at the moment? Well, I think that would be a wonderful outcome, you know. And I think I think if we don't listen this time, we'll just get slapped with something else a little bit bigger. Uh, and in a shorter time frame, you know, we won't be waiting for the night, you know, the, the gap between these pandemics has been 1918 and obviously you've had other ones, you know, the 60s and yeah. 90s. But um, yeah, that would be a, a, a I think, a, a dear wish uh, for all of us to take this sort of moment to uh, appreciate what's uh, immediately around us and perhaps enjoy that a bit more. I mean, going back to the all the wisdom is within the stories, there, there's a bit of a tendency in our kind of um, Western capitalist, well, I shouldn't categorize it that way, in the society within which we live, to have to unearth all the knowledge ourselves or individually. It's like, I've got to go, I've got to do it myself. I've got to go and find it myself. Like this asking and showing that you don't know is a bit frowned upon. So I love your piece about reconnecting uh, generations for those stories. Mm, absolutely. Great. Well, thank you for the time, Belinda. We nearly hit uh, an hour. Um, I just wondered if you had any, do you have a name for your book yet? Or is it TBC? Employee Experience by Design. Employee Experience by Design. And when's that available? It's not until February. So um, Corona has um, taken many things away from me and many things away from other people. Um, but it has given me a little bit of time to, to focus on this. But the, the, yeah, the headspace to do it is a little bit challenged at the moment. So yes. I am enjoying reconnecting with the topic of the book, but I'm struggling to turn it into words on a page.
Understood. Well, look, thank you so much for, for joining us on the Building New Realities podcast. I look forward to continuing the conversation with you um, in uh, very soon. Uh, many thanks. Thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. really enjoyed it. Thanks, Belinda.